Let's pray. Father God, we want to be drawn closer to you. We want to know more and more of you and your love. And we pray that this time when we gather round to listen to some reflections on words of Jesus, you might help us to hear your voice, to see Jesus, to hear his good news, and be inspired to follow you. Amen. Many of you, even those who might have avoided it previously, uh, may have got increasingly adept at online shopping over the last 16 months or so. I must admit, guilty as charged. There have been times when delivery drivers must have felt an urge to check Jules and I were okay because we'd gone a few days without having a parcel. But one thing I haven't really got into, or not really had to get into, is grocery shopping online. Well, aside that, apart from coffee, get your priorities right. Last year, when everybody else was panic buying toilet roll and soap, I had a coffee mountain in our spare room. But I know some people who have been doing their grocery shopping online for years. And it sounds great until the shop don't have what you ordered and decide to swap it for something else. And I'm pretty sure they get it mostly right most of the time. But occasionally they get it badly wrong. I came across a newspaper article which highlighted a few of them. Like the person who ordered a tub of roses chocolates, but got sent a bunch of roses instead. Okay, maybe not too disastrous. But then there was the person who ordered sunflower oil and got an actual sunflower. Again, at least I suppose you might see how that mistake arose. I'm less sure about the person who ordered frozen fish, but for some reason got fabric softener instead. Or the person who ordered latex gloves and was sent a pack of condoms. Jules will tell you that most weeks she reaches a point in the sermon where she wonders where I'm going with this. And let's just say we hit it fairly quickly this week. But last week we started a new series called A More Christ-Like God. And over the next few weeks we're asking a very basic question. What is God like? Last week we saw that for Christians, our understanding is not just that God can be known, but God wants to be known. We are created to live in relationship with God. God has been reaching out to us down through the generations in different ways. But the most decisive way he has revealed himself is in sending Jesus. Words couldn't do God justice, so he became one of us. God couldn't reveal himself in the pages of a book. And if we were truly to know what God was like, 
God had to be experienced, lived out, enfleshed. And that's what he did. So if we want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Jesus alone is the image or the exact representation of God. And last week I left you with three statements which underpin what I want to say over the next few weeks. God is like Jesus, God has always been like Jesus, and God always will be like Jesus. God is like Jesus, God always has been like Jesus, and God always will be like Jesus. It's important that we keep those three things in mind. Because as we read through the scriptures, it's possible to come up with contrasting, even seemingly contradictory images of God. At the most simplistic, many live with this idea of the Old Testament God versus the New Testament God. And you know what I mean. The Old Testament version is angry and all fire and brimstone, whereas the New Testament God is more chilled, relaxed, all peace and love, man. That is, until we get very near to the end, when, according to some, even Jesus drops a nice guy act and gets all angry and violent again. We'll come to that later in a few weeks. But it's kind of hard to square that with the God described in the opening hymn, of whom it was said, praise him, still the same forever. Now, God has decisively revealed what he's like in Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is the one to whom all other understandings of God have to conform. If your God, even if you believe he's the God you're encountering in the Bible, doesn't look like Jesus, it's time to rethink. Often when I get into conversation with someone who tells me they don't believe in God, often I'll find that when they describe this God that they don't believe in, I don't believe in that God either. Oh, I'm sure there are people who believe in the kind of God described by, say, Richard Dawkins, but I don't. And I'd venture most people who identify as Christians don't. But even amongst those who do believe in another type of God and who do identify as Christians, we can develop quite distorted views of God. As Bradley Jerzak suggests in one of the books which has highly shaped and influenced this series, it's like our highest expectations and deepest disappointments can get pushed onto God and they shape how we see and we understand God. And the problem is, the results are all too often poor substitutes for the God revealed in Jesus. They're about as much use as a sunflower in your supermarket shop when what you needed was cooking oil. They're even worse than fabric softener when what you asked for was frozen fish. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at four such distortions. And they have many things in common. Um, like many falsehoods, they are powerful because 
They contain a shred of truth. And they're all kind of based on one of the key images Jesus uses to describe God. God as our Father. Father seems to be Jesus' go-to image for God. Jesus refers to God in this way at least 70 times in the Gospels. And today was one example of that. But like all images, it's not without its problems. We use the term father in different ways. At one level, it simply refers to the male partner who's involved in the conception of a child. Such a father may or may not have any further involvement with the child. And then at the other end, there are those who nurture, nourish, raise, support, direct a child, sometimes even when theirs might not be the name recorded on the birth certificate. But they're more of a father to the person than the person whose name is. And I know which type of father is preferable. And Jesus is very much talking about the latter kind, the kind of father intimately involved in the love, support and nurturing of his children. In fact, Jesus encouraged us to call God Abba, a very intimate word for father. It's wrong to say it would have been just small children who used it. You know, recently Jules and I have been watching uh, and is really... Jewish drama called Stiesel, following the lives of an Orthodox Jewish family in Jerusalem. And even the growing up children there referred to their dad as Abba. When Jesus talks about God as Father, he is talking about one who, as we heard about in the hymn, tends and spares us, knows our weaknesses, tenderly cares for us and protects us. But the second issue that not, is that not all of us have such good or, or even any experiences of fatherhood. And that comes across in the kind of false images I want to talk about. These are God the doting grandparent, God the absentee parent, God the overly demanding parent, and the final one, which is kind of a mix of the three, the Santa Claus brand. So God the doting grandparent, God the absentee parent, God the overly demanding parent, and the final one, God the Santa Claus brand. Today we're going to look at the first two. And we'll start with the doting grandparent because many of you will have become grandparents and you're perhaps aware of the differences in the way you behave with your own kids and the way you behave with your grandkids. I was never her biggest fan, but I did find it quite witty when the former First Minister of Northern Ireland, Arling Foster, as the country was coming out of their first lockdown, suggested that, oh, the grandparents will be really excited to see their grandkids, before adding, but maybe not so much their children. But for some, this is the image they have of God, the, the doting grandparent, a sugary, nice figure who can be twisted round our little fingers. A smile or a frown is all it takes to get what we want from them. 
A God that turns a blind eye to our misbehaviour. For some of us, God's only as good as what he's done for us lately. And that can even be backed up by Bible verses. Even some of the ones we shared this morning. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. Jesus says things like, whatever you ask from the Father, he will give it to you in my name. Luke does kind of put a bit of a caveat on the ask, seek, knock thing. He asks about God giving the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Matthew doesn't add that caveat. But these are big, bold claims. I remember once in a church service, a, a worship leader leading prayer and saying, and this is a quote, if we just ask for these things in Jesus' name, God is duty-bound to give us what we are. That's a distorted view of God. Because ultimately this God serves us, not the other way around. We snap our fingers, he acts. And it's fine until life doesn't work that way. Until that cancer isn't healed. That daughter keeps using drugs. That partner refuses to listen to reason. We don't get the job. One of the reasons I so vividly remember that quote about the duty-bind God is that we prayed for two very similar, seriously ill people, similar illnesses in my church at that time. One made amazing recovery. The other died. If God was duty-bound to answer our prayers, what does that say about our prayers or about God? And I'm not even talking about particularly selfish things. You know. I'm not saying, oh God, would you buy me a Mercedes-Benz? And if it was just stuff like that, it would be easier to rationalise. A good parent doesn't Give us everything we ask for. Not everything we want will be good for us, even if it appears to be. And it was there in what Jesus said. I'm told there are some sea serpents that look remarkably similar to fish, but they would be harmful if eaten or even picked up. Or that a scorpion could curl up so that it looked like an egg. And even if you cut it open, it would be a mix of white and yellow. I can't confirm that one. It was just one source and he admits he's never tried it and doesn't plan to. But things we want may not necessarily be good for us. And a good parent recognises that. But there are times it's more mysterious than that. There are times when we might think, how could this possibly not be what God would want in this situation? Park up thought. We'll come to that again in a few weeks. But if our image is of God, the doting grandparent who spoils us, who comes running when we click our fingers, who ultimately serves us, before long you'll become disillusioned. 
because life won't work out as planned. And when that happens, we may give up on God altogether. Or maybe we swap him for the second image, the absentee parent. Because if anything, this is like the flip side of the doting grandparent. You know, this is a God who's either powerless or unwilling to help. And it can be felt by those who have some kind of sense of abandonment in life. You know, those who had that parent who left and never visited. The one who never came to the school play. The one who never picked them up when they cut their knee. The one who was always distant, never around, wasn't to be disturbed. And far from expecting this God to jump into every situation, we can come to expect nothing of God. Many Christians have an orphan spirit. Maybe you're one of them. You don't really feel that, that sense that you are really loved by God. Oh yeah, up here, you might know, and you might even say you know, God loves you. But we're not, as Paul puts it in Ephesians, rooted and established in that love. Some of us can live with this sense of God loves us because, well, he kind of has to. It's his job. And maybe that comes a bit from having that experience in our own lives and relationships. Or maybe it comes from those times when we've known disappointment in prayer. We've asked for something, perhaps persistently, and the heavens have just seemed silent. Our prayers feel like they just bounce back off the ceiling. We can slip into this sense of a social services type God, means testing our prayers, summarised with mottos like, God supplies your needs, not your greeds. And we can reach the point where we ask nothing of God. Where we talk about prayer, not about changing God, but about changing us. And it's kind of half true because it's not about changing God and sometimes our hearts do need to be changed. But equally what we can really need is that it's not about changing situations. That we just accept it as the way it is. And that's tempting sometimes. Because you don't face disappointment that way. A few years ago, largely on the back of a period when I suffered a bit with my mental health, I began to incorporate more contemplative prayer into my life. It would be mostly wordless, sitting in silence in the presence of God. And I still use that today quite a bit. And for a season, that might have been helpful because that was how I learned to pray that way. But it was, for a time, it was the only way I was praying. And it was good. I was creating space for God to quietly speak into my life. But after a while, I started to sense something was missing. A 
and it was as basic as I'd stopped asking for stuff. Which at one level sounds quite virtuous, but it's not. Because the God we encounter in Jesus doesn't mind being asked. He encourages us to. He delights in his asking. He loves to give good gifts to his children. And Bradley Jernsack writes about talking to Eugene Peterson, the author of The Message, about this tension between the doting grandparent and the absent parent, between asking for everything and assuming it's our right and asking for nothing. And Eugene Peterson's response was to be prepared to be disappointed. Be prepared to ask. But be prepared to ask, knowing that your prayer might not be answered as you want or expect or think it should, and certainly not in the time frame we want. But also to be prepared to trust God with that, even with the disappointment. He said, pray for heaven to touch earth. Grieve that heaven is not earth. For the God we encounter in Jesus is a good, good father. He's neither the doting grandparent willing to be wrapped around our little finger, jumping to fulfill our every whim, but neither is he the remote, distant, disinterested, uninvolved God from whom we ask nothing. And that's good news. For these substitute gods, they're about as much use as a sunflower when we needed cooking oil. Even worse than fabric softener when we're wanting to make fish and chips. Accept no substitute. He's a God who delights to give good gifts to his children who knows what we need to before we ask, but delights to be asked anyway. Who does somehow or other build our prayers into the ways he works in the world. But he's also a God who knows our end from our beginning. Who knows the fish from the snake, the egg from the scorpion. He can be trusted to be at work in all things and that his purposes for us are good. So may you keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking, and may you discover God as the good Father who delights to give good gifts to his children. May you come to see that God is like Jesus, always has been like Jesus, and always will be like Jesus. May you turn your eyes towards Jesus and see God afresh. May you see in him that God loves you completely and unconditionally. And may you accept no substitutes. Grace and peace.